Episode 115, everybody, with Dr. Roy Buszynski. And Dr. Buszynski came back to talk with me uh, about, of course, the only topic that really matters in society right now, coronavirus. Tremendous, tremendous conversation, plethora of information um, and wisdom and insight shared by Dr. B. So I really appreciate it. This is probably the most important uh, episode I've ever done. Uh, based upon where we are in society, all the changes that are happening, the potential threat, etc. And Dr. B provides a ton of information to help us through it, what to expect, the reasons that we're taking such drastic measures, uh, remedies, potential ways to slow down this uh, ever-spreading disease, and so much more. So thank you, Dr. B. Please share this episode with friends, with family, and stay safe out there, guys, while you enjoy this next episode with the one and only Dr. Roy Buszynski. The Optimal Life. Haber Optimal Life podcast series. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me again. I realize that I'm in a very small group of people that are getting a recurrent uh, opportunity to, to be on your <laughs> Optimal Life show. So I appreciate it. And I really do know that this is a difficult time for a lot of people across the country and certainly around the world and I really do appreciate that you have asked me to come give my uh, what I call pearls of wisdom although I do want to state up front that as I'm not an infectious disease specialist but I certainly am knowledgeable enough to be able to talk about how we got here and where we're going sure um, but you know the, 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 the question that's on everybody's mind right now obviously is what the heck is going on? How did we get here? And where is this going to? That is. That is. Thank you for coming back. Thank and uh, this has taken over the entire world, clearly. It's something our country's never seen. At least anybody that's living today has never seen something like this. So I wanted to start the podcast off with the true or false, and then I want you to elaborate. Okay? Sure. True or false? In implementing the social distancing procedures, guidelines, and rules, we'll call them, that the government has implemented in the past week, the government has overreacted to the coronavirus outbreak. False. In my opinion, the social distancing and isolation that has been implemented by the government and by certain states is absolutely necessary right now to stop the flow of viruses from person to person. Let me elaborate on this topic because I think this is the question that everybody's asking right now is, is social distancing and is quarantine and is isolation really necessary? And the point of the matter is it's now about containment. We know that the virus is in the United States just like it was in China three months ago, just like it was in Italy and still is in Italy and many other parts of the world, to the extent that we are now dealing with a pandemic. And what that means is not that all of a sudden things are serious and out of control. It just means that when you go from an epidemic to a pandemic, you're now dealing with a worldwide condition that affects pretty much every continent on this world. So we know that this virus is in the United States. In fact, if you look at the numbers, I think we are currently around about 6,000 as of 
this morning. It may be different now. And the question then becomes is how do you contain this virus from going certainly from person to person and in my opinion how do you prevent it from going to the at-risk population which are those people that are over 65 and those people that are immunocompromised. So absolutely essential that containment and social distancing and all other um, restrictions that have been placed on concerts and sports venues and work and uh, political rallies is absolutely necessary to prevent the spread from person to person and with uh, and throughout the communities. Do we know how it's being spread? So we think and we know actually that the predominant form of spreading is through respiratory droplets. So when I sorry when somebody coughs or sneezes, those droplets can then go from you that person to someone that's close by within six feet. And that can then affect them so it goes into their nasal passages, it can go into their mouth and even into their eyes. There are some other ways where it can be on objects such as desks or chairs or doorknobs, etc. And that's why we are so gung-ho on making sure that we clean down those surfaces. But the predominant form of spread is through respiratory droplets. And that's why later on in the talk, we'll get to ways of preventing this from spreading from person to person and on personal hygiene. Why, why do you think that this is the first time in our American history that we've seen such extreme measures taken? For example, two, everyone points back to 2009, H1N1, and some of the other diseases that have come about over the last 20 years that wiped out a lot of people and were just as scary. Why is this time different? So if you look at the various uh, outbreaks in the past, obviously way, way back before any of us were alive is the 1980 pandemic, which destroyed, which killed 50 million people worldwide, about three quarters of a million in America, and all the way up through uh, 2002, 2003, and then 2009. The big difference this time is that we are at a point where we are dealing with a novel virus. This is a new virus where our bodies do not have any prior immunity to this particular virus. So that in people that are otherwise immunocompromised, they are really being um, affected to the point where they may require hospitalization, ventilation, etc. And again, we'll come back to that because I do want to point out that the majority of people, about 80% of people, will only have a flu-like illness. Mm -hmm. So they may have a fever or a cough or a sore throat predominantly, but 20% of the population will require further management. In fact, the, the, the range is 15 to 20% of people will require hospitalizations. So you can see that in a population of 325 million people in America today, if only 5% of the population, which is a pretty low estimate, but if only 5% of people were affected, you would see that that number would come out to about... 18 million or something like that. Uh, 325, 16... About 19, six, 19 million. You got it. Yeah. And then of that 5%, if you look at it, 20%, will land up in either being hospitalized and then about, I would say about 10% of those people will require further additional support such as intubation or rather ventilation and oxygen support. How in the world, from a scientific standpoint, 
do doctors, scientists even know? Like, going to the root of this thing, how do you even know that this is a coronavirus? Well, they've done studies, and now we, re- we have hindsight now with the China experience, which, you know, started back in the end of December when they started noticing that people were getting this very different kind of pneumonia. And they couldn't figure out what was causing this pneumonia. So they ultimately started doing uh, uh, studies, both on um, nasal swabs as well as post-mortem studies. And they were able to diagnose and to to come up with this uh, coronavirus. And the reason it's called coronavirus, ironically, is because it's got these spikes at the end of the the cell, which look like a crown. And that little spike is what gives it its name. It's coronavirus. Now this, we've known about coronaviruses in the past. But this particular form of the uh, of the of the coronavirus is a is a novel form of coronavirus, and you may hear the term novel coronavirus or COVID nineteen. Right. And that identification um, that they came up with, basically, they were able to to identify what this is, and they were able to therefore put together some sort of a. Um, understanding of the mechanism of this virus now what this virus does is very interesting because we we spoke a few minutes ago about the respiratory droplets and how it gets into your into your nasal passages or into your mouth and then it goes into your pharynx which is the back of your throat and then what it does is it can cause a mild illness in the majority of people but in some people it actually crawls all the way down your bronchial tubes and down your airways and it gets into the surface of your lungs and that's when it starts to cause problems because it causes inflammation in your lungs which avoids or rather blocks the ability to take the oxygen from the lungs into your bloodstream and that's when people require hospitalization they require oxygen support and maybe even ventilator support so it's almost suffocating people for lack of a I mean, they're, yeah. not, they're not getting an oxygen flow. Yeah, not to get too technical, but it becomes more and more difficult for people to get oxygen to flow from their lungs into their bloodstream. And as a result of that, they drop their oxygen in their bloodstream, and that, of course, affects all the organs. Which is, of course, why they're having trouble breathing, and then it's... Right, exactly. You hear these, these horror stories. Exactly. Yeah. Now, again, I do want to reiterate, because I think for your listeners out there, I want you to understand that it is not the majority of people that get this... Um, this sort of extent of disease. But the problem is, is that there are a lot of people walking around today that are that have the mild disease or even or even better, don't have any symptoms whatsoever, but they are carrying the virus. Right, they can carry it for up to two weeks, I've heard. Exactly right. Dormant in their body, and then it either fades away or it could flare up, correct? Correct. Okay. So we don't know who is carrying this virus or who isn't carrying this virus. Incidentally, I do want you to know that last week out of a uh, sort of a, uh, pr- a, a profound caution or an abundance of caution, I did get tested because I felt that I was seeing a lot of patients um, out there, some that were sick or rather immunocompromised, some who had asthma, diabetes, and I felt that it was necessary for myself to be tested. Fortunately, it came back negative. Um, So I do know what it's like to get the nasal swab, but there are people out there. In fact, they're now the dictum kind of pretty much is assume that pretty much most people have it. And that's why this um, what they call um, sort of uh, social uh, engineering. uh, No, not social social distancing. Thank you. Yes. Is so important because 
You just don't know who's carrying it because symptoms don't always tell you the whole so, story. So people, we think as a whole, the, the entire population could be potentially carrying it or vast numbers of people could be carrying it. Yeah, and I think what's going to happen wow. as we now start to test more and more people, you know, there was a bit of a uh, slow start, let's say, uh, for a number of reasons, but there was a slow start to get people tested. And what's happening now is that, you know, from yesterday till today and even the day before, you're seeing the numbers jump up by about a thousand across the USA. And the reason you're seeing the numbers jump is not because there are more cases necessarily, but because there are people out there that have this coronavirus that are now finally being tested mm. and they're having more access to getting testing. And it's not just because of people like uh, Tom Hanks and Kevin Durant and some of the uh, Utah Jazz players that are getting it, it's pretty much showing you that it's absolutely pervasive and we all need to be aware that any single one of us is at risk for getting it, but there are definitely factors that make people more uh, predisposed to the complications of this condition. You mentioned the seeing the, the spikes the way the virus, how do the scientists, even, where do they, how do they see what the virus looks like? How does that work? I mean, I think this is all microscopic and they, but how do they, where do they pull it from? Oh, they get it from the, um, from my understanding of that is it's either done through the actual, um, the specimens that they get. So the, the, whatever secretion you're looking at. I'm sure they have electron microscopy where they can magnify it and look at it. Looking at th from a human being's body, they're pulling it, pulling it from there. You got it. Okay, so they need that. You you could only get it. You can't. You can't. This might sound silly, but you can't determine what a a virus looks like unless it's sitting inside somebody's body or an animal's body. You have right? to isolate it. You actually have to because isolate. Even though it's float, if when it's floating around, you can't do anything about that. Correct. That Correct. Is crazy. That it is so crazy. Scary. But if you think about it, this is how we ultimately make the vaccine, because right. we we do, we take parts of the of the virus um, uh, cell and we make we take some of the protein and based on that protein, just like influenza, we can take that protein, give it to the individual and they can then make an immune response so that when coronavirus comes around next winter, let's say, our bodies then have a vaccine which can then say, hey, I recognize this thing as foreign. Let's go out there and, uh, and fight it off. And that's the whole idea of vaccination is to sort of make that patient um, immuno, uh, uh, immuno uh, competent so that you can recognize that as foreign and then fight it. Because now what's happening is the body doesn't recognize it. So the virus is left to do its damage and cause inflammation. And then the body has to sort of fight it from that point on. So you guys have been testing. We are now testing at university hospitals and um, at Cleveland Clinic. Right. Um, from what I heard yesterday, they, they, they've been checking the last two days about 500 people a day. Um, and that's part of the reason why we're now starting to see a much bigger jump in Ohio and in Cuyahoga County mm -hmm. because we're now testing more people. So you test, it's a nasal swab, you said? So, yeah, so now it's either a nasal swab or a pharyngeal swab like you might have had when you had strep. Okay. And the nasal swab where you put a little, uh, it's like a Q-tip, and you go into the nasal passages, you take a little uh, sample, you twirl it around, and then you can do what's, uh, and again, I'm not a, a virologist, but basically they do a, a test that allows them to identify the protein as that of the coronavirus. And how long is it taking to get results? So we are taking it, uh, it's taking us about 12 to 24 hours to get it done. 
from my understanding, there are some um, labs that are now trying to get it done within two to four hours, which is quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have heard some stories in the beginning. It was taking like three, four days to get it back. And again, part of this was because all the specimens were being sent to the CDC or they were being sent to state um, state uh, lab- laboratories. But now they're actually being done in the particular hospital labs so that UH, clinic, Metro all have the ability, wherever you are across the country, each hospital now has the ability to do the testing on their own. Have you come across any positive cases? Yeah. So in my practice, um, I have seen so far three patients um, that have had it, and I'm happy to say they're all doing well. Um, The ranges have been mainly in the 50 plus range, which is possibly why they're all doing well. You mean age-wise? Age-wise, okay. but they're under 60. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these are patients that don't necessarily have the, the travel history that we were always taught to ask when this first started about three, four weeks ago. At that point, it was absolutely essential if the patient had traveled to either what we call the uh, hotspots, such as China, South Korea, Japan, and Italy. Um, and now, as you know, we, we, we know that there are many other hotspots, including France, including Spain. So, you know, over 100 countries, there's, there's an outbreak now. Yes. So a lot of the people are now getting what's called community spread, where it's not a matter of, oh, I traveled overseas somewhere, but you can get it from traveling within the United States. You can get it, you know, you just might have heard this morning that some of the TSA um, officers have now been diagnosed. So it's unfortunately pervasive. Um so three three people have had it positive. So three people have positives. And They're, I assume you guys just recently started testing in the past, what, few days, week? Well, we started testing about the last 10 to 14 days. Okay. Um, but it's definitely been ramped up now. So whereas in the beginning, it was very, very specific as to who can be tested. Right. Now we actually have the ability to say, you know what? You've got a fever. You've got a cough. You may have a little shortness of breath. Um, in the past, if you didn't have that travel history, we may not have done it right. because we didn't have enough supplies. Now we're saying, you know what? That sounds very suspicious. Let's get you tested. And you guys want to see what kind of different forms this thing takes on as well because I, sh- I assume not all two patients are e- created equal and you're going to see different symptoms from different people. You're right. but what's, You're so right. But what's important as well is that once you can diagnose these people with corona, you can then get them off the streets. You mm-hmm. can quarantine them for 14 days or isolate them for 14 days so that that individual is not affecting other people. It is said that the uh, reproductive ability, in other words, the ability of one person, if you or anyone has coronavirus infection, one person can infect two to four people. So you can imagine if one person's running around with coronavirus, they have this ability to affect two to four this other people. This is how the spread is, why it's so scary. And that's why it's so important to get these people diagnosed and to get them off the streets and out of the social world so that ultimately they will not be able to spread it for the duration of that virus, which is about 14 days. And, but, and it looks similar to a flu, correct? Most symptoms? Absolutely right. It it's like often this. impossible to distinguish clinically from the flu. Okay. Fever is in the majority of people, 90%. Cough in about 70%. And then uh, other symptoms such as shortness of breath, a little bit less. But it can be anything. It can be a sore throat. It could be a headache. Some people can actually get diarrhea. I guess that's why there's such a rush on toilet paper in the supermarket. But most people present with the respiratory symptoms, yes. which is the, the fever, the cough, and the shortness of breath, 
and sometimes a sore throat as well, which is totally mimics uh, uh, influenza or even something called para-influenza. And then, of course, we're, we're in March now, so there's still a lot of colds, there's allergies. But again, the key over here is fever, and we use 100.4 as our cutoff. 100.4. You got it, Fahrenheit. Okay. As your cutoff, meaning if it's above... If it's 100.4 and above, we get concerned that this could be corona. Oh, okay. If it's less than that, we're not saying it's not corona, but we are, um, we're, we're, we're a lot concerned. We're a lot more concerned when it gets to be 100.4 above, which doesn't mean that every person with 100.4 above has corona, (laughs) but I think they should at least be seeking it. But probably every person with corona has 100.4 above. At some stage, at some stage, you're exactly right. They have a temperature above 100.4. So you've gotten the positive test, which has got to be pretty shocking with everything that's going on around the world, the media, the news. It's overwhelming. Here you are. You're the man that has to deliver the news. What is the message when you call these patients? That's a great question, Nate. You know, there are two things, two um, uh, aspects of coronavirus. One is the physical and the other one is the emotional. So from a physical standpoint, Fortunately, so far, all three patients have been physically uh, not too bad. So they've had a fever and a cough, but they haven't got to the point where they're short of breath and they have to be admitted, thank God. Mm. So breaking the news to them, and by the way, most of the three, all three have pretty much said, I kind of, I kind of I figured I had it. Okay. Even though they didn't have the history of travel to the hotspots, they all had a history of traveling on airplanes mm-hmm. to numerous sites. And rightly so, they said, look, I, I, I suspect I've got it. Uh, one individual really pushed hard and said, look, I know I don't fit the hotspot criteria, but I think I've got it. I want to be tested. And then once we were able to get more testing done, we tested that person. Um, and lo and behold, they were positive. So the first aspect is the physical aspect to say, look, I've, you've got it. And most of the time, if they're not too sick, they're actually quite relieved that you actually have an answer for what's going on. Interesting. And then they also are relieved because they they now know what's going on so they can isolate, but then their big concern becomes, oh my gosh, who have, who have I been in contact with over the last 14 days? And then there's the emotional stigma that's associated with coronavirus, that where people get it and they feel that they are, you know, even though it wasn't their fault, they feel bad because they might have infected other people in the process. And that, that, that can be quite... Um, um, uh, hard for people to to accept that you know that they've been out there and and potentially infecting other people. Remember what I said earlier on that for each one person that has coronavirus infection, it's believed that two to four other people are infected. Right. So that's why the 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 the, the contact history of who you've been with over the last couple of weeks is very very important. Uh, because most people over fourteen days, you know, have been exposed to a lot of people over the time. So you have to de- you deliver the news, and then what's the the because the, there's not a cure for it currently that's known at least, or at least a cure that's a hundred percent. So what what do you tell them in regards to what they need to do for themselves, what they need to do for the people that they live with, and what they may need to do for people that they've been in close contact with? Right. So again, excellent questions because once you've got it, there is no treatment, absolutely zero treatment other than symptomatic treatment. If you have a fever, we're going to give you some uh, either a, a Tylenol kind of product or an anti-inflammatory if you have a headache. If you've got a cough, we gave we may give you medicine for your cough. 
So the treatment is purely symptomatic because, as you correctly said, there is absolutely no treatment for coronavirus at this point, and I don't anticipate one, certainly for the next year, year and a half. Wow. Now, the next question then is, how do you take that person and prevent them from spreading it to other people? Because you can imagine, you can't isolate everybody. Not everybody has the ability to say, okay, I've got it, I'm going to send my family out now to go live somewhere else with another family. So the person that has it should be wearing a mask. They should be, as much as you can, quarantined in their room uh, for 14 days um, or at the very least six feet apart from someone else in the same household but they and others in their household should be wearing a mask and there's really? been a lot of debate wow. out there whether masks are effective or not but i think once you have the virus and you confirm positive in my opinion there is absolutely no doubt that wearing a masks a mask helps to spread the the, the droplets that are so um that are so uh, uh, much that are out there. Um, and then, of course, the stuff that we've been hearing about, which is hand hygiene, um, which is clearly washing your hands, like we've heard all the time with soap and water for 20 seconds. Uh, if not that, using hand sanitizer, which I brought a nice example here with me. It's got to have at least 70% alcohol in it. Okay. The problem is, as you know, is you can't get them anymore. They're, they're <laughs> yeah. off the shelves. You yeah. can't get them elsewhere. Um, and then last, what I call not just hand um, hygiene, but I, I, I never mind wash your hands, but I like to say watch your hands. So you can wash your hands as much as you want to, but you've got to watch your hands. And that's where things like ha uh, fist bumps and handshakes and all that you can see have pretty much um, uh, kind of been avoided by most people. And they're doing either what we call the Ebola elbow or the Wuhan tap with your feet. <laughs> The, that's what we did the Ebola album you got we? it yeah. when I walked into the house um, <laughs> but you know at the end of the day I think people are very very um, sensitive to the fact that we are we're all we're all at risk um, and whether the, the risk is whether we uh, are under 60 even though that risk is is smaller of getting a, uh, a more of a fulminant disease uh, we are all at risk of, of, of being carriers and of, 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 you know, we've all got either parents or older aunts or uncles or grandparents. Some are blessed to have great grandparents. And we all know that none of us would want to infect any of those elderly people in our, in our family. So the key is, if you've got it, stay inside for 14 days. Now they're recommending that you have to have two successive negative swabs to show that you're COVID-19 negative before you can go out into the population. How many days apart? Good question. 24 hours apart. Okay. So we tell people for 14 days, quarantine yourself. If you haven't had a fever for at least 48 hours, after those 14 days, you can come out and get two uh, swabs. The problem is, kind of what I mentioned earlier on, is that we've just had, we haven't had the capacity, we haven't had the, the supply of all the swabs, but we're, that theoretically is the best way to prove that you are negative. Um, so, what about for their family members? Do they have to stay in for two weeks now as well, or is this a little trickier? So that's a very good question. It is a, it is a little trickier because theoretically you would think that family members, because they're being in close uh, proximity to individuals, you would think 
you would assume that they have the illness. Well, sorry, that they have the actual virus. They're carrying it of some sort, yeah. So what we're telling people is not necessary for every family member to get tested unless they have symptoms, but to definitely quarantine themselves for 14 days as if they already had the virus in their system. And this goes back to how we started this conversation on true or false, and you said false because it spreads so easily. And as you said, it spreads from one person to up to four people. So the multiplier effect is tremendous. What's the you brought a, an article that talks about uh, the curve, right? Is there a curve? Yeah. So this is what we call the uh, the curve, which is you might have seen uh, some of the people on uh, TV showing this curve, uh, calling about a surge, and then um, some people call it the storm uh, uh, curve, which it's called the epic curve. And what it shows is that there's a certain capacity for our healthcare system. In other words, we only have a certain number of ventilators in our in our country. We only have a certain number of ICU beds, which I think is about 100,000. Okay. And if everything happened all at once, the surge of cases would absolutely uh, it, uh, surpass the, the capacity of our healthcare system. So that by implementing uh, social distancing and isolation and quarantine, you are cutting back or you're cutting, hoping to cut the surge of cases in a short period of time mm. and you're drawing it out. It's more protracted over a longer time so that those ventilators and those ICU beds are available for people to, be, to use because the last thing you want is, God forbid, a situation where the surge totally surpasses the capacity and then you have to make a decision. Who do I give this ventilator to? Wow. Patient A or patient B? That would be the uprising in society. It, it would, would be, be an absolute disaster. nightmare. Wow. And not just from a, um, a life and death standpoint, but from an ethical standpoint. Yes. Can you imagine having to make decisions about one person's life versus another person's life? And how do you make that decision? How disastrous. Because there's no, there's, no, <laughs> there's no right answer to that. There's no good answer to that. I mean, you know, there's no, no, but nobody's life is more important than the next. You're, you're a hundred percent right, and that's why this, this policy of what we call uh, being proactive preparedness, making sure that we have all hands on deck, and that everybody is doing their part to prevent this illness from surging, is so important. We know that the virus is here, but now what we're trying to do is to prevent and to contain it so that we don't get this immediate surge in the numbers that surpasses our ability as a as a country and as a healthcare system to take care of the of those that are seriously in need of ICU beds and and ventilators uh back before we move on from that the third part to the prior question about anyone that has become tested positive you've talked about what they need to do for 14 days what their family needs to do in the household. What about coworkers, friends, relatives, other people that they've come in contact with? What is the advice in that regard? So the advice right now is that if you have been in close contact with anybody that has been diagnosed with COVID-19 and you have seen them over the last 14 days, you are at risk of of having uh, through respiratory droplets uh, got that virus into your system. So 
history is so important because you want to be able to ascertain whether someone, whether it's a co-worker or a relative or a family member, if you've been in contact with a positive patient, the guidelines say you should be quarantined for 14 days, not necessarily that you be treated if you have no symptoms, okay. but that you be quarantined and you do not go to work and you do not go out and you do not interact with other people for the fear that any time within those 14 days, you may develop actual um, actual uh, uh, symptoms. Remember, this virus can be spread even if the individual is asymptomatic. So people can be running around. It takes somewhere between 2 and 14 days from the time that you inhaled that virus. It takes about 2 to 14 days. They, call, they talk about a mean of 5.2 days of getting an infection after you have been um, uh, exposed to that virus from another individual. Wow, so that's incredible. why we are so uh, gung-ho on this 14-day quarantine. Some people say it's actually 12 days, but they give another two days just to be safe, which I can understand. Um, but it does take as short as two days, but the mean is about five days to start exhibiting some symptoms. Uh, and the point of here being that you can absolutely be exposed to someone with no symptoms who can then pass it on to you. Um, the danger, of course, is in the elderly population. That's why we're asking people that are over 65 or 70 to stay hunkered down. Um, st avoid social connect contacts if you, if you can. Don't go out unless it's for a quick shopping or, or doctor's visit because we don't know out there who has it and we don't know whether those, carry those people that don't have it are just asymptomatic carriers. And that's why... My best advice is when you, if you're older, over 65, or if you're younger and you have an a, a underlying condition, which can be anything from diabetes to asthma to heart disease to chronic kidney disease, if you have those underlying conditions, you are more predisposed to not just getting the infection, but to getting the complications of the infection. You said that you don't think we're going to have a cure or a treatment for about a year, approximately, plus or minus. So with that said... I can't foresee the government shutting down this country for a year. However, aren't we potentially still at the same risk? We are if there's no treatment, no cure come August, September, October, are we as a society still at the same risk or have antibodies developed naturally in us as human like what what's going on? So, again, another great question because the goal over here is through um, containment and through social distancing and through isolation is that you remove the people that are ill from the general community so that they don't continue to spread it from person to person. Remember, if you get the virus in the majority of cases, 80% plus, your body will create immunity, will create autoantibodies and you most likely will not get the virus again. So the point being over here is that if you can, you can pull those up too, if you need the, uh, on the, uh, the, the, those will adjust a little bit. Can you, if you go like this, yeah, you'll feel it. You could pull them, up, pull them in a little Thanks. bit. Thanks. The point over here being that if you can get those people out of uh, the out of society for as long enough time, which is fourteen days, you can ultimately limit the flow of virus from person to person because ultimately the virus gets destroyed. 
your body ultimately overcomes it with its immune system when right. that immune system is working. Mm-hmm. Then they've been talked like the influenza virus that when the weather warms up, people are outdoors. You don't, people are not huddled in the same offices or in the same rooms and the virus doesn't spread from one person to another. There's also been debate whether the virus itself at certain warmer temperatures um, actually doesn't, um, it's not as active, so it doesn't spread as easily from one person to another. So there's all this sort of stuff out there that hopefully will um, curtail and, and diminish the, the, the rate and that not having to wait a year or a year and a half for a vaccine or a treatment is going to be the answer, but rather through containment and through people bring, producing their own autoantibodies, um, you can ultimately, as I say, get a, uh, get a hold of it. If you look at the Chinese model, what started off as a, in January as an absolute uh, um, uh, rise in numbers, if you look at the data now, they are getting new cases uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the single digits per day, which is amazing. I mean, at one time, they were getting hundreds and thousands a day. I mean, they were Jeez. up to 85,000. But now, through containment and through getting people off the streets, what I heard the other day is that 60% of some of the uh, workers are back in their workplace already. Things are starting to warm up. Uh, things are starting to, um, to, to get back to normal in, in, the, in the sense that the, 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 the virus numbers are diminishing. Uh, people are getting back to work. And I'm hoping that this model that has been shown in China, that we can take the good and and the bad from it and learn what they did right and what they did wrong. And we can ultimately, at the very least, mirror what they did, but hopefully improve on what they did because by acting earlier and getting people off the street. So right now, I know we have uh, different states that all have different uh, recommendations. Some states like ours in Ohio have closed bars and closed restaurants. I think those are excellent ideas. But on the flip side of that, you've got these poor business owners that are losing thousands, hundreds of thousands of income. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a whole nother story in terms of the economy of our country. Yes, it is. And yeah. I'm glad to see that the government is really putting its money where its mouth is and is going to be helping uh, these individuals and these small businesses. Um but coming back to what you were saying is that we hope that looking at the China model, that we can ultimately learn from what they've done right and hopefully not make the mistakes that they made and uh, and continue to lower this curve because that to me is the key. The fact that the virus is here is, is it's here. We, we yeah. can't we, do anything about that now. It's right? here. It's can't get the, rid of that. It's in the USA between uh, airplanes and people traveling from, from A to B these days. We know that it's here. And now we need to try and contain it as best as we can. You know, I've always been an optimist, and I and I and I am a, the optimism that I have in this scenario is that we will contain it. We will not get the surge, which is being predicted. And I, and I understand the the predictions out there are always, you know, about what um, the quote that I've often heard is: "You cannot predict, but you can prepare." Right. So we hope that we don't need to get to that level of of. Uh, of numbers that some people have predicted um but at the ultimate we need to prepare so that if we do need ventilators and icu etc we can have it available whether it's through the reserve that the government have or even getting it from other places looking into your crystal ball you've been doing medicine for a long time you've seen quite a few things over your years based upon that based upon all your research the way the government's handling this 
looking at your crystal ball, how do you see the next 30 to 60 days playing out as a society? I think the next 30 to 60 days are going to be more of the same. We are going to be continue with our social distancing, uh, sports events, uh, all these programs that we're so used to as Americans on a day-to-day basis are going to be continue to be shut down. And I think by the middle of May, so that's two months from now, okay. I think we are really going to start seeing that the numbers are going to start decreasing. We're going to start being able to get back to our life again. And I think the positive out of this is when you look around and you see people doing good things for each other and helping each other, you realize that as Americans, we really are here to support our community. And you know, I think Mark Twain once said, you, you, you do your best by, or you feel your best when you do your best for others. Something like that to the point of people are really showing their best in, in, in how they're trying to help out. We will get back to normal. I saw a very good article this morning in the New York Times, and it was all about the uh, the BC and AC. In fact, I think Thomas uh, Friedman wrote it in the Times. And no matter what one's political views are, he wrote about AC and BC, uh, BC being before Corona and AC being after Corona. Um, mm-hmm. And the point being that we've all learned through this process um, that everybody, doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter if you're a king or not a king, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, it doesn't matter if you're uh, uh, any kind of ethnicity or, 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 uh, or, or uh, religion, everybody is at the same risk. And yes. what we've learned from this is humility. And I think we've learned that you know, we there's so much things in life we can control and you can plan your life, but ultimately it's events and accidents that really determine how our lives work out. So on the positive note, I think everything will be okay. I do think it's going to be four to six weeks of hunkering down and sort of more of the same. But I do strongly believe that this, um, the this policy of what we're doing with social distancing and quarantining and isolation is absolutely necessary coming back to your first true or false question but i do see i do see good and i do feel that we will be able to rebound and that this country will be better off for it and i think the whole world will be better off for it realizing you know we that we are ultimately able to survive even when you take away things like everyday um uh, formalities that we are so used to and now we're doing you know zoom webcasts and now we're sort of socially distancing ourselves but we're being sort of forced to do things that we haven't done for many many years which is either sitting at home and talking to our kids or to our family or doing <laughs> lectures through yeah. zoom i mean can you imagine if we never had this technology today of of, of wi-fi and zoom technology we really would be uh what I would call the good old days where we never had any technology, we'd be listening to the radio again. Well, so- the, and the information sharing piece of it, the technology piece, the information share, this is where the information sharing and social media, where of course there's always going to be garbage. This is where you can see a lot of good from it too, because 30 years ago, you had to turn on the news. You had to wait till you got home. There wasn't this kind of fast information. Now with the technologies, with being able to communicate, stay in, all these measures, we're able to adapt much quicker as a society. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is so true. On the one hand, it's wonderful that we have this access to this technology. I do agree with you that there's a lot of uh, 
myths out there that are people put are people putting out about corona from everything from drinking lots of water to uh some other stuff that i've heard along the way yeah, yeah water- like, ha- like having good sex they'll, they'll get rid of it you know you hear oh, everything yeah, don't you? uh you know have a little cocaine along the way <laughs> so obviously there's lots of myths out there but i do want to say that there are some really really good um uh, sites out there for those of you coronavirus.org cdc.gov johns hopkins has a great site and then um and then uh, Sanjay Gupta on CNN, in my mind, provides the facts without the emotions. and uh, Which is what we need right now. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. You know, we're, we're at war with this invisible enemy. And to your point, you know the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And it's kind of brought all of us together because every human being has the same common enemy right now. It's called coronavirus. So... It's 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 bringing us together like I've never seen in my lifetime, and it's really cool in a way to kind of see this kind of stuff. It's kind of weird. I mean, it's a little unsettling, of course. It feels uncomfortable with all these shutdowns, but on the flip side of it, it's making us almost more pure, like taking us back to our roots and allowing us to have more interactions and take less for granted and... I don't know. I think it's refocusing us as a, as a human species. You're so right. And maybe this was necessary in terms of us taking a step backwards from our daily hectic lives and, and sort of coming back to say, okay, what's really important to us in this world? Family, making sure that our parents are well, calling grandma, calling parents, making sure that we're doing what I call uh, good good citizenry and they're making mm. sure that our neighbors and our friends are doing okay whether it's sending a text to someone hey just thinking of you how you're doing something that makes you feel good because you're reaching out and makes the other person feel good because they're receiving receiving messages as well so social distancing does not mean social isolation isolation and through the mechanism that you spoke about earlier on whether it's through skyping or through um uh, uh, zooming or or webex or or picking up a phone or texting all this technology at least helps us to interact with people yes um yes i do believe that it was uh, president roosevelt that said the only thing to fear is fear itself and i think fear has really taken over a lot of our our feelings and our emotions um People call this a fear-demic or a, or a, uh, uh, a panic-demic. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot, of, a lot of the fear is totally understandable. But as I like to tell people, being anxious is one thing because we all have fear of the unknown. So being anxious is totally normal. And for someone to say, you know what, I feel anxious, that's abnormal. It's absolutely normal to feel anxious. But when that anxiety becomes panic and it overwhelms you, that's when we as individuals need to step in and say, okay, how can we help this individual uh, so that they're feeling better? And that's, you know, whether it's mindfulness, uh, meditations, going for a walk, getting outside, doing something that allows your body to uh, sort of feel better uh, so that you don't feel this feeling of panic, which unfortunately is real. It is, it is. And that's a, a, another thing that people are having to deal with and and, uh, and will continue to. Um but yeah, this is what 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 I take away from this is uh, the other silver lining is we've kind of created a worldwide blueprint for how to handle such a nasty thing next time it happens or a novelty disease next time it happens. I don't think this has ever been done before like this. I agree. Right? And we hope that we take the lessons that we've learned, the good and the bad, 
and we say, okay, this is what we have to do next time this comes around. Because you and I know, sure as we are breathing air today, that this is going to happen again. This is coming again, again in, a, in a much more severe form, potentially. And unfortunately, or, you know, this is just part of life. And there's always going to be what I call uh, hiccups along the way. And this is a this is quite a big hiccup. Mm. But this, unfortunately, is, is part of our life cycle where you're going to have good, but you're also going to have bad. But just remember, everything's going to be good. And if it, what's it, the saying goes that everything's, uh, everything's good, um, everything's okay. <laughs> I, it, hold on, it'll come to me. Don't you hate that when you're trying to totally. think of a saying and you're like, damn it, how yeah. do I do this? It's like the George Bush moment. <laughs> <laughs> fool me once, we'll shame come. on me, shame on you. Fool me twice, you ain't gonna fool me again. We'll get to it, don't worry, it'll come to my mind. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, what, what, whatever the saying is, you've provided a plethora of tremendous information and insight into this, into this conversation we've had today. And one thing that I'm taking away that I feel really good about is don't panic. Everything, for the most part, is going to be okay as long as you continue to do the right things that we talked about. Follow the guidelines. Listen to what the government's telling you. And if you start feeling like crap, the best thing to do is stay home. And if it progresses, 100.4 fever or more, uh, shortness of breath, those kind of things, go in and see your doctor and get checked. That's exactly right. I have the quote. There you go. Everything will be good in the end. And if it's not good, it's not the end. Beautifully said. I like that. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Perfect way to finish off. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Nate. And uh, thank you for a wonderful uh, podcast uh, session with you again. Thank you as always.